Okay, be honest just for a second with yourself. Have you ever been in a situation where you've asked yourself, wait, what's in it for me? Or thought that to yourself? I think if we're being honest, we all have at one time or another. Today, Neil and I are discussing selfishness and why it so easily plagues our lives and the antithesis, selflessness. We share some of the examples we've had in our lives of selflessness, along with some deeply inspiring stories of sacrifice that I'm almost certain will leave you wanting to be better. Hello there. Hi. I'm with Neil and really excited to talk about the topic we're going to share today, which is selfishness or what's in it for me. And I actually had a totally different topic that I was preparing and that we were going to record. And you know how sometimes God speaks to you and puts the same theme into your life a few times and you're like, okay, okay, I'm listening. I got it. That was what happened to me last week in the last few days. So we were at our ARP, our 12-step ARP meeting last week, which it was such a treat for me to go to. And I've had to miss a lot lately because I have this new calling in our church and young women. So I can't go to our regular 12-step meeting very much anymore. But I got to go this last week because the activity for the young women got moved. So we have like a high councilman who's kind of a representative from the stake. He comes each week and he shared, he had a great share this last week and he shared in part of his share, he talked about this quotation from Neil A. Maxwell. And he said, selfishness is really self-destruction in slow motion. I was like, wow, like my mind was blown. So I'll say it one more time. It's so good. Selfishness is really self-destruction in slow motion. And when he said that, I just kept thinking about how true that is and how And I thought, whatever talk that came from, I need to find it. So I immediately Googled it and bookmarked it so that I could listen to it later. What was your reaction when you heard him say that? Well, that just (laughs) made a ton of sense to me because I think that anytime I've been selfish or self-seeking or prideful, progression in my life seems to stop. Everything slows down and then things just quit coming together in general. And so I'm like, yeah, that makes a ton of sense to me because everything starts to fall apart when it's basically anytime I've ever been like self-seeking and really just caring about me. Yeah. So I came home and listened to that talk, which was incredible. And it's called Repent of Our Selfishness from April 1999. Listen to that talk. And then I also on Sunday, so yesterday, I was cleaning and getting ready. We're about to go on a trip to Utah and laying out the clothes that I was going to pack. And I turned on a talk to listen to because oftentimes I'll just listen to old general conference talks while I'm doing something and listen to that talk that I had queued up. And then the next talk that automatically came on was a talk called What's In It For Me by James E. Faust. And it is an absolutely incredible talk. As I started listening, I thought, oh, this is such a good talk. I wonder what it's entitled. And it's entitled, What's In It For Me? And I immediately thought of the movie Field of Dreams, where kind of toward the end, Kevin Costner says, I hate to say what's in it for me, but what's in it for me? Because he had built the field and done all this stuff. And then he wasn't the one who was invited to go into the little dreamland where the players who were kind of like showing up from heaven and playing baseball they would like go disappear into this field and someone else was invited to go experience that instead of him. And he was kind of like, wait a minute, what's in it for me? Like I did all the stuff. Why don't I get a turn? 
And it's funny. And and the movie's really good. It's a classic. I grew up watching that. But basically, this topic of selfishness or what's in it for me is universal. Like, it doesn't matter what religion or faith you subscribe to. This is a universal, I think, something that pretty much everyone can agree on, that being self-seeking is destructive. And when you think outside of yourself, I mean, that's really the greatest commandment that God gave us was to love Him and love others. And that's at the heart of selflessness. But let's start off with talking about what Neil A. Maxwell identifies as selfishness. I think this is really interesting. So he says, the early and familiar forms of selfishness are building up self at the expense of others, claiming or puffing credit, being glad when others go wrong, resenting the genuine success of others, preferring public vindication to private reconciliation, and taking advantage of one because of his words. So when I read that, I also think of an example that this is going to sound so cheesy and kind of embarrassing, but when I watch it, I have a hard time not tearing up because I thought it was so beautiful when it happened. And I just showed it to Neil and was trying to not like cry while I was showing him. But in 2019, the Miss World pageant, and I love pageants, like I'll still watch them. I was in them years and years ago. And in the Miss World pageant, Miss Nigeria's reaction to Miss Jamaica winning is remarkable. It's just something that you watch and and you can tell she's not faking it. So they announced the winner, Miss Nigeria doesn't win, Miss Jamaica wins, and yet Miss Nigeria starts jumping up and down for joy. She's so happy for her friend. You can tell that she's just purely, genuinely psyched. And this is like, they're they're in the top three. So she was in that final nail-biter moment where she was like, is it going to be me? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be me? And then when her competitor wins, who appears like she's her friend, she's so genuinely happy for the success of someone else. It's just awe-inspiring. And you watch it. And that's why, for me, it makes me emotional every time because I think, wow, I want to be like that. I want to be like her, where I'm so genuinely happy for the success of others that it precedes any thought of, well, what about me? Or what's in it for me? Or when am I going to succeed? Neil, have you had any experiences or things you can think of where you've observed this or? I think the main thing that's coming into mind for me is this is so counterintuitive Mm -hmm. to what the world would say. Like any, so much of like, I don't know, I feel like a lot of times in business or in other arenas or how to be successful in your life has to do with the exact opposite of being excited for somebody or shouting for joy for somebody. I mean, I think of that movie, The Founder, when it's like, yes, the guy playing, well, Ray Kroc in the movie is talking to the McDonald's brothers. And he's like, if your competitor was drowning, would you come and stick a hose in their mouth? And then he basically says like, that's why you're not successful. That's why you haven't been able to drive the franchise beyond what you have. And I think that that's kind of such the the mindset and the thinking a lot of times of worldly success or how to be truly successful in business is you have to be like that, which isn't true. But I think that a lot of times we can get caught in that type of thinking. And it it comes back to that competition and being competitive. And not that there's anything wrong with that, being competitive, that is, but I think the spirit and the way that we go about it. And that's why I love, I think that's so cool, that video that you showed me. I'm like, wow, that's a super competitive arena for sure. And you're dedicating your life to it. But yet in that moment, she's so excited for her friend. 
Right. And that's not just a, you show up and you kind of do it for fun and it's just some hobby. These women who are Miss Jamaica, Miss Nigeria, and then they go on to Miss World, that is their life. That is their sun up to sundown. They eat, sleep, and breathe the pageant world and being prepared to go to something like Miss World. And that is a literal once in a lifetime opportunity. You don't show up year after year, like the Olympics or something else, hoping that, you know, maybe next year. It's not like that. It is a one-shot deal. So even more cool to see her just rejoicing in the success of someone else. So another example of selflessness or selfishness is about worldly possessions. And so I wanted to read this. This is from What's In It For Me. James E. Faust says, I have learned that selfishness has more to do with how we feel about our possessions than how much we have. The poet Woodsworth said, the world is too much with us, late and soon, getting and spending. We lay waste our powers. End of quote. Faust goes on to say, a poor man can be selfish and a rich man generous, but a person obsessed only with getting will have a hard time finding peace in this life. Elder William R. Bradford once said, of all influences that cause men to choose wrong, selfishness is undoubtedly the strongest. Where there is selfishness, the spirit of the Lord is absent. Talents go unshared, the needs of the poor unfulfilled, the weak unstrengthened, the ignorant untaught, and the lost unrecovered. I think that's so powerful. And I want to circle back to the beginning of that quotation where James E. Faust talks about Selfishness has more to do with how we feel about our possessions than how much we have. I think that's super interesting because I have known people who are abundantly wealthy and blessed temporally, but they are so humble and meek and giving and kind and truly genuinely selfless. And they're always looking for ways to bless and serve others. And I've also, in an inverse, known people who are struggling financially and they are very selfish and very worried about kind of a scarcity mentality of there's only a little bit for me, so I can't give anything away and resenting people who have more. And I feel like we've all known people who are like that. And it's just really interesting to hear that laid out in this example. So I wanted to share a personal story that I think of all the time when I think of selflessness and especially when it comes to possessions or wealth or material things. I started playing the piano when I was eight years old. And then when I was about 10, we moved to Utah and I, from Washington state, and I really wanted to excel in piano. And my parents were trying to find the perfect piano teacher for me. And they found out about this teacher who was at the University of Utah and she was the head of the piano performance department. And I auditioned and by some miracle, she took me. She only had like 14 students, I think. And she took me under her wing and started training and developing me. And then after a year or two, she said to my parents, so this was when I was about 12, because I remember when my mom told me that this was going to happen, that she was pregnant with my brother, Jake, who was born when I was 12. So I was about 12 years old. And my mom said to me, tomorrow we're getting a Steinway grand piano. And at the time, that was an enormous financial sacrifice for my parents. Huge. I mean, my mom at the time was driving this just kind of run down, beat up Land Cruiser, Toyota Land Cruiser that had like, it didn't have power locks. What's the opposite of that? 
non-power locks. I don't know, whatever, where you have to push them up or down. Yeah. And then you have to use the key to unlock the door and not even like power locks were kind of a cool thing in the nineties that happened where it was like, you could push a button and they would all unlock in the doors. All the doors in the car would unlock. This was old school to the point where you had to literally manually unlock every single door and the windows went up and down with a hand crank too. You know, it was old school and it was a cool car. Like we would get stopped in different parking lots. People would say, are you going to sell your Land Cruiser? And it was a cool car, but it was for my mom, not luxurious and especially not luxurious to be driving four little kids around in. And yet my mom... I know for a fact my mom drove that car longer than she had originally intended to so that I could have the Steinway Grand Piano, which was, I think, like $40,000, I want to say. That's which much is as like a car right absurd. now. Absurd. Yeah. Which also, I was reading to Neil an email from my grandpa that his first home that he purchased in the avenues in Salt Lake City was $40,000. So it's like... It's insane that my parents spent that much money, but they wanted me to have the best because they could see this dedication and potential in me to become a pianist that that could change my life. And it did. And I had scholarship opportunities and it provided so many open doors for me because my parents were selfless and willing to dedicate something that would serve me better than necessarily what would serve them in the moment. So I'm so grateful for that when I think back on that sacrifice. And I really feel like sacrifice is the key to selflessness. If you can figure out a way to sacrifice, then you're going to bring selflessness into your life. Another way to describe selflessness is people overcoming character weaknesses or changing. And I feel like I've seen that in my grandpa and my dad and a lot of people that I love. I've watched it with my parents and their mission that they are just about to complete. But This is what Neil A. Maxwell said about selflessness. So he said, in contrast to the path of selfishness, there's no room for road rage on the straight and narrow way. There will be no spouse or child abuse when there is unselfish love at home. Furthermore, unselfishness is best grown in the family garden and likewise, diligently performing seemingly ordinary church duties can further help us to overcome selfishness. The unselfish are also more free. As G.K. Chesterton said, if we can be interested in others, even if they are not interested in us, we will find ourselves under a freer sky and in a street of splendid strangers. I think that's so beautiful. And this past weekend too, I was at youth conference and the couple that ran it are just amazing. They are just world-class top-notch people who just poured their hearts and souls into making this youth conference absolutely incredible for the kids in our church congregation ages 14 to 18. And I watched them work themselves to the bone, making sure that these kids had a great experience, that they came together as a community, that they learned. And I told my friend Missy, who ran this over the weekend when kind of the adults had some downtime. I said, I just studied this talk about selfishness versus selflessness. And I said, one of the ways that Neil A. Maxwell said to overcome selfishness is to serve in your church calling or serve your church community. And I said, you're doing it. That's so cool that you guys, that this dedication that you're giving to all these kids to have this incredible opportunity and experience in their church youth conference this weekend is allowing you to become more like the Savior, because you're deconstructing that selfishness that we all have within us and building your selflessness. And so that was cool for me to read that and see that example and be able to tell her. But Neil, do you have any examples that you've seen of 
again, where it says like, there's no room for road rage on the straight and narrow or unselfish love at home. Yeah. The one that comes to mind, I think of my dad's such a great example of so many things, but I think of one thing that I have been really, really impressed by him. One of the many things I really admire my dad in so many ways is we're Polynesian. He comes from, grew up in Samoa, was born in New Zealand, grew up in Samoa, came to to Utah, met my mom and the rest is history. But as far as growing up in, in that family, like there were a lot of times that were if we got in trouble, the Polynesian style was like, was, was pretty direct. Like you know, it was, you got the smackdown, <laughs> you know, like it was pretty, it was pretty solid. So, um, but I, but I saw that my dad, like he changed a lot, like he softened a lot and he became super charitable and super patient and really understanding. Um, and, and not that he, he always wasn't that way, but it, it definitely developed over the course of the years. So I do remember one time, like being a kid, me and my brother, we rode, loved motorcycles, not dirt bikes. And so we had this dirt bike that we had bought together and, you know, it's illegal to ride it on the streets, but I would do that anyway, being a teenage kid. And that was something that my dad, he was like always so hard about. He, in the first place, he didn't want us to get a motorcycle, but my, my brother talked him into it, being the person that my brother is. And Didn't he have like a PowerPoint presentation or No, something? as a kid, my dad was, we had this family meeting and my brother like laid out this plan of like- Dave, right? My brother Dave, how he could get a motorcycle and why and what he would commit to doing and drew up a contract. And Dave's like in sixth grade. I mean, he was like 10 or 11, like this, you know, just- amazing, but got my dad to buy in was like, all right, you know, you cannot ride this thing on the street. And so fast forward a little later, Dave sold the original motorcycle we bought. We bought another one together. And then I'm a kid and want to ride my motorcycle and don't have a trailer to tow it to dirt. So I ride it on the street and I get caught, (laughs) I get pulled over by a cop I'm underage. I'm like 15 at the time for uh, having a license. And, you know, he writes me this ticket, off-road vehicle, on-road, no license, you know, all kinds of stuff. And I remember coming home and telling my mom, I'm like, mom, don't, you know, don't tell dad about this. Like, I'll pay for it. And so she didn't say anything, but came home one day, my dad had made me some food and just was kind of quiet. And, you know, I'm like, all right, everything's good. And we sat down, we had a meal together. And then at the end of it, he kind of throws out this, this envelope and it's got the little badge on it, like the (gasps) sheriff badge (laughs) of, you know, when you get a ticket, you get the mail, the the letter from the sheriff's office with the ticket. And he's like, I saw this come through today, you know, and I was like, oh, shoot. But he had the way that he handled that was amazing to me. Just total love and, you know, asked me about it. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm sorry. I'm going to pay for that. And just very humbly was like, okay. And never brought it up again and never gave me a hard time about it or never forbid us from having motorcycles from there on out or anything like that. But, but just to see the way that he changed in his progression was really amazing. It's set a really solid example for me and really something that I admired about him. That's so cool. Yeah, I think it's really a mark of selflessness when people change and when you see them you know, change of heart, change of character. And I saw that in my grandpa too. 
I remember when I was, I think I was about 10 or 11 years old. We were coming back from a backpacking trip. I used to go backpacking with my dad. And this one was like my dad and my uncle and a couple of my cousins. And we had so much fun. It was something I looked forward to every summer. We were coming home and my dad got a phone call that his dad was in the hospital. And he had been at a barbecue, I think, and choked on something and aspirated. And he almost died from tearing his esophagus. So he was in the hospital. This whole thing happened. He almost died. He ended up living But before that accident or whatever event in his life happened, my grandpa was such a hard worker. And I credit a lot of my learning of how to work hard to him and to my dad. So it's not necessarily, it's it's not a bad thing. I am super grateful that I grew up with that legacy. But I remember my grandpa up until that point, every family dinner, he would have work like his manila files file folders spread out in his lap a lot of times as we were sitting at the dinner table at like a Sunday dinner working while we were eating or the minute dinner was done, he'd go into like the living room and spread his stuff out and start working again. After this accident, I remember he completely changed. He would sit down and do puzzles with us. He would talk to us for long periods of time. And it was just remarkable to see someone who was older. He was my grandpa. Little kids can change pretty easily. Maybe younger people can change. But for someone who had lived a lot of life to completely change and to say like, this is the way I want to live my life. And again, it wasn't like he was doing something evil or awful, but just to be even further dedicated to character refining and wanting to do what was best for those around him and to become more Christ-like and give of himself even more. It's just amazing to me to look at that example. So it's totally different than what you shared, but similar in that it was someone who changed and became more Christ-like, which is the goal for all of us, right? Totally. You had a really amazing story that you brought up when we started talking about this topic and examples that have really stuck with us throughout life. And so do you want to share that one? Yeah, this is something that I've, I remember seeing a video, they may actually made it, our church made a video about it, but so back in the day in the 18, you know, mid 1800s, you have all of these people coming, you know, pioneers coming over to the West, people who have migrated from other lands. And a lot of our ancestry and, and people were a part of this pioneer group that came over. So one of the groups, there was about a thousand of them. They got a late start in the migration from, you know, East to West. They were coming to Utah and they got caught in all of these storms and they're pulling these hand carts through across the the plains and they are just in rough, rough shape. They don't have, they're running out of food or they're out of food. But one of the former prophets of our church, President Hinckley, president of our church, he tells this story. So I'm just kind of going to read this, but he says, in 1856, more than a thousand of our people, some of them perhaps your forebearers, found themselves in serious trouble while crossing the plains to this valley, meaning the Utah Valley. Because of series of unfortunate circumstances, they were late in getting started. They ran into snow and bitter cold in the highlands of Wyoming. Their situation was desperate with deaths occurring every day. President Young, who was the prophet at the time, learned of their condition as the October General Conference was about to begin. He immediately called for teams, wagons, drivers, and supplies to leave to rescue the bereft saints. 
When the first rescue team reached the Martin Company, which was the this group, there were too few wagons to carry the suffering people. Their rescuers had to insist that the carts keep moving. When they reached the Sweetwater River on November 3rd, chunks of ice were floating in the freezing river. After all these people had been through and in their weakened condition, that river seemed impossible to cross. It looked like stepping into death itself to move into the freezing stream. Men who once had been strong sat on the frozen ground and wept, as did the many women and children. Many simply could not face that ordeal. And then he quotes from the record. Three 18-year-old boys belonging to the relief party came to the rescue, and to the astonishment of all who saw, carried nearly every member of that ill-fated handcart company across the snowbound stream. The strain was so terrible and the exposure so great that in later years all the boys died from the effects of it. When President Brigham Young heard of this heroic act, he wept like a child. Really, really powerful story just to think of the sacrifice of these you know without hesitation like jumping into a, a stream or a river floating with ice in in the middle of the winter to help these people who had just gone through so much and were basically knocking on death's door and just carried all of them across and just such a heroic act and completely selfless it's just a really, I don't know, it, that that story has really had a profound effect on me and just in thinking about sacrifice and um, exactly what you're talking about, being willing to set aside, and in this instance, your own well-being and even safety, and eventually they died from the effects of it. Such a powerful, powerful example of it. Yeah, I agree. I've always really loved that story too. And in the scriptures, Jesus says, he that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. And in the talk, What's in it for me, there's another story that I thought was incredible. And I don't remember this talk being given in general conference, but it was a year later. So September 11th happened in the year 2001, and then President Faust gave this talk in 2002. And I think this story is totally worth retelling here. So he says, on September 11th, 2001, the twin towers of the World Trade Center in New York City were hit by terrorist-controlled airliners that caused both towers to collapse. Thousands of people were killed. Out of this tragedy have come hundreds of stories of courageous, unselfish acts. One very poignant and heroic account is the Washington Post story of a retired Army colonel, Cyril Rick Rescorla, who was working as vice president for corporate security of Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. Rick was a very experienced ex-military combat leader. He was in his office when the first plane struck the North Tower at 8.48 a.m. He took the call from the 71st floor, reporting the fireball in One World Trade Center, and he immediately ordered an evacuation of all 2,700 employees in Building 2, as well as 1,000 more in Building 5. Using his bullhorn, he moved up the floors, working through a bottleneck on the 44th and going up as high as the 72nd, helping to evacuate people from each floor. One friend who saw Rick reassuring people on the 10th floor stairwell told him, Rick, you've got to get out too. As soon as I make sure everyone else is out, he replied. He was not rattled at all. He was putting the lives of his colleagues ahead of his own. He called headquarters to say he was going back up to search for stragglers. His wife had watched the United Airlines jet go through this tower. After a while, her phone rang. It was Rick. I don't want you to cry, he said. 
I have to evacuate my people. She kept sobbing. If something happens to me, I want you to know that you made my life. The phone went dead. Rick did not make it out. Morgan Stanley lost only six of its 2,700 employees in the South Tower on September 11th, an isolated miracle amid the carnage. And company officials say Rescorla deserves the most of the credit. He drew up the evacuation plan. He hustled his colleagues to safety, and then he apparently went back into the inferno to search for stragglers. He was the last man out of the South Tower after the World Trade Center bombing in 1993, and no one seems to doubt that he would have been again last month if the skyscraper hadn't collapsed on him first. And that story to me is just so amazing. Like, just Christ-like love, right? Can you even imagine being like, okay, I'm probably going to die, but I need to make sure that I take care of my people. That's incredible. Yeah. And a lot of times I think it's some of these extreme situations you really see it can bring out incredible traits in people of just complete selflessness and love for others and just understanding of something greater or it's just amazing to hear. And there's so many instances that you, you know, we, we know of with these, especially with like the September 11th and heroics that happened, but what a powerful story. Yeah. I thought that was really incredible. Okay. I want to close with one last quotation from repent of our selfishness that Neil A. Maxwell shared. So he said, consider unselfish Melissa House, whose comparatively young father died of cancer several months ago, just before Melissa, who was then nine, was voice in family prayer pleading, Heavenly Father, bless my daddy. And if you need him more than us, you can have him. We want him, but thy will be done. And please help us not to be mad at you. I should have made you read that, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can't, I mean, just a little nine-year-old girl. And please help us to not be mad at you. I just, like, such amazing faith of a, a little girl who says, okay, Heavenly Father, if you need my dad more, then you can have him. That's pretty amazing. I don't know if I could be, if I would be that selfish. I could be, but I, I need to continue to work on myself. And so I just thought that this topic was, there was no mistake and no accident in the fact that it popped up in my life several times over the weekend, over and over. And so grateful for these examples and stories of people who have paved the way to show me that sacrifice is the key to selflessness. And, you know, I hope that I can take those examples and become more like that and and try to become really more like our Savior because He was the ultimate example of selflessness. Absolutely. No, I love that. The thought that I have is, a lot of times you hear these different stories and read about these traits and, and I, you know, I'm, I myself, I'm trying to work on all this stuff and it can be overwhelming. And I think it can be kind of daunting to be like, man, I'm so far from, and not to say that we're going to be expected to go save, you know, hundreds of thousands of people from a, a building or some extreme or help people cross a frozen stream to the detriment of our own lives. But in our own way, that there are sacrifices that we are called to make or just trying to be better ourselves. And that can be a little overwhelming. Even just, I think the battle of self is one of the most challenging, uh, in my opinion. I love the what it talks a lot about in scripture and, and just the principle of willingness, that being willing to listen to God and being willing to listen to the inner voice and follow that um, and being submissive in that way. 
um, is really, in my feeling and in my opinion, that that's really what God is asking is, is just, are you willing? I know it's not going to be perfect, but, but are you willing to do this or willing to try or willing to be even open to being better? And that as we're willing, that because of what Christ did for us, that Christ makes up the difference or is the difference and that we can become the people that God wants us to be because of that sacrifice. That's all. That's all I've got. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for hanging out with us. And we'll put all of these resources in the show notes and that video of the Miss World pageant and these talks and everything. So study them if you want more examples and more concrete evidence of people having really incredible experiences with selflessness. So thanks. And we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Mint Arrow Messages. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Mint Arrow. Subscribe to our Apple Podcasts and rate and review us if you like us. And to get show notes, go to mintarrow.com slash podcast. And you can even sign up to get show notes emailed right to your inbox. And we'll email you every time there's a new episode. <laughs>